I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Let me begin by asking you this. How many of you are burdened by the direction it seems our world is headed? A lot of you, right? How many of you are concerned about the next generation, the condition of our nation, the future of the church? Well, you are not alone. Many in our church are concerned about the next generation and about how how many are drifting from God and are asking, what if, if anything can be done or are we past the point of return? Church, we are not in uncharted waters here. Throughout biblical history, throughout church history, those in the church have been concerned about the generation to come and have wondered what needs to be the response to a generation that seems to be drifting from God. We're going to discuss that this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 2. We are continuing our study through Judges today in a series we are calling Faithful God in a Fallen World. This morning we're going to be studying the rest of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. For the past few weeks I've been introducing to you the book of Judges. This morning we're, we're rounding out, finishing out that introduction. In this passage, the author returns to Joshua and the faithful generation who trusted Joshua and trusted God, who followed, who, who, who chose Joshua and used him, that faithful generation that took Jericho and moved into the land of promise. He's going to return to focus on them just for a moment. And, and that generation that followed Joshua, that faithful generation, and then he's going to turn his focus toward the generation after who drifted from God. We're going to study this text this morning and learn what our response should be and what we should seek for God to do to a generation that is drifting from Him. Very, very applicable this morning. Here's the first point. When answering the question of what a drifting generation needs most, we learn in this text they need reminding of who God is and what He has done. They need reminding of God's person and work. Last week, we we learned that while God had given clear instructions to his people through Moses and Joshua, that his people were to move into the land of promise and move their enemies out, push the Canaanites back 
from that land. They failed to trust God and they feared their enemies more and they made compromise after compromise. We learned the consequences of compromise, right? There are blessings on the road to obedience, but there are ter terrible consequences when we compromise our obedience. They allowed the Canaanites to remain in the land, but they made, made excuses. When the Lord shows up, beginning in chapter 2, they have excuses given in chapter 1 for why they did not obey. They, they, they first argued that they could not obey because their enemies had chariots of iron. They're too strong, God. This is interesting because God tells them in Joshua 17, 18, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Not an excuse, right? God told them beforehand. That shouldn't have been your excuse. They either did not listen or they weren't told by those in the previous generation. More on that in a moment. They also refused to obey because they said they were reliant upon secret intel to invade a key city. So they let this individual and his family go and he takes his, his pagan Canaanite influences elsewhere. So it's really no victory at all. They make a compromise there. Another reason they, they, they argue they could not Drive them out is because they were not allowed. Their enemies overpowered them, pushed them back. That was their assessment. They could not, they did not, they were not allowed. The angel of the Lord appears in chapter 2 and gives them a heavenly assessment of why they failed to obey. He told them, it's not because you could not, it's because you would not. The angel of the Lord says, you blamed it on chariots of iron, on needing secret intel, on the strength of your enemies, and have not trusted in God to bring you the victory and do what he promised he said he would do. Where you have said can't, God says won't. That's a big difference, right? God's people Israel had made compromises in obedience, and they paid the price spiritually while they failed to destroy these wicked nations they did however defeat and enslave them that should be good enough right that's what they felt as if it was good enough god tells them it's not look at verse 3 of judges 2 i will not drive them out before you he's not going to do it now but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. These Canaanites, instead of, instead of being faithful servants of God's people, Israel, for good, they become destructive thorns in their side. Where did God's people go wrong? Why did they fail to trust in God? Why did they fail to obey Him? They had a promising start, right? We're even told that here. Look, beginning in verse 6 of Judges chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great 
work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. This is a good start, right? Joshua led them well. He was a servant of the Lord. And they served the Lord well under Joshua. Something we learned here right off the bat from Joshua is that when leaders serve the Lord, that makes it easier for those under their leadership to serve the Lord. Joshua was a faithful servant of the Lord and his followers served the Lord. Joshua led by example. He said, as for me and my house, what? We're going to serve the Lord, right? He led by example. He called for his followers to do the same and we're told that they did so. Those of us in leadership, we are to serve in this way. As a pastor, I am called to lead you in serving the Lord. No better way for me to do that than for me to serve the Lord faithfully. Amen? As a parent, it's a lot easier for my girls to serve the Lord when they, in addition to hearing about God as I teach them, to see me faithfully following Him as I lead them. Does it guarantee they'll follow Him? No, we'll learn there's no... No grandchildren in God's kingdom, right? But when I am faithful in my service to the Lord and lead in that way, moms, when you do that, dads, when you do that, it's the best path to take to make sure those under your leadership will do the same. Are you this type of leader? Pray God give you the grace to lead others in this way the next generation needs those types of examples and influence joshua was this type of leader he was a servant of the lord he led god's people israel through the jordan and into the land of promise and they like joshua believed god they trusted god they served god god used them to take possession of the land those in Joshua's generation served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, right? Now remember, Joshua and Caleb, they, they stood alone. They were the only ones who made it to the land of promise out of that generation. Everyone else was like, ah, it's too big. We love the land and everything, Lord, but it's, it's too much for us. Joshua and Caleb were like, you said it, God, let's go take it. Only two to make it. But Joshua, in that position of leadership, he was used to influence a generation after him. How about that? One person's faithfulness can make a difference, right? We learn that in Scripture. Don't get burdened by what everybody else is doing. You be faithful. We're told because he was faithful, a faithful servant of the Lord, he led others to do the same. And he, unlike every leader before him, from Joshua to Moses, many in the generations after him, listen, Joshua died in the place he was supposed to. 
He died full of years, we're told. 110 in the land God promised to him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez. And all of that generation were, were, were also gathered to their fathers. Joshua was faithful. He made an impact. Great start to the book, right? But something happens. Look at verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. There is a word that occurs here twice in verse 10. Very important word used all throughout scripture. It's the word generation. It has to do with you and those around your age living at the same time. That's a generation. Did you know that God thinks generationally? He absolutely does. Did you know that he is just as concerned with what happens in this, this generation as he was the previous ones? Did you know that? You know he's just as concerned with the generation to come? He absolutely is. That is why, like we discussed at the beginning, you should be concerned with the spiritual direction of the next generation. When you are mindful of the next generation in your home and in the church, you have the mind of God there. The fact that his book is filled with chapters upon chapters of names that read like a Hebrew phone book show us that God cares about people generationally. We often just view those chapters as less reading in our Bible plan, don't we? Be honest. But what this shows us is God cares about people. He is thinking generationally. While God was pleased with the life Joshua lived and the lives of those after him, he is also concerned with the generations to follow. The question for you is, are you? Are you, you looking toward praying for, ministering to the next generation in your home and in the church? Joshua was. He said again, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He called for, for others to long for the next generation as well and, and, and lead accordingly. But it seems as if the generation after Joshua's generation did not do a good job of preparing the next to serve the Lord. Those in the generation to follow, the generation that followed Joshua, were not faithful. Why? We're told they did not know the Lord. They did not know what he had done. You've heard me say before that what we know is extremely important. That's why there are much more, many more indicatives in Scripture, the way we think, what we know, than imperatives. It's not that the imperatives are not important, but God knows he created us, right? The way we think influences what we believe, which influences what we say and do. If you think rightly, you're going to live rightly, right? They didn't know, so they didn't believe. Therefore, they didn't live accordingly. Very sad. This new generation may have heard these stories about God delivering his people. But they did not see them as precious stories that were central and vital to their people's lives. Parents, while we must teach our children, we're told that in Deuteronomy 6, read that this week, our children must see that our faith is precious and central 
to our lives. Do those closest to you know that your faith is what is most important to you? And are they passionate about it as well? Parents, grandparents, we pass on to our kids and grandkids that which is important to us. Right, moms? We pass on those things that we value. How passionate are you about the things of God? How committed are you to living for Him? Do your kids and grandkids see Jesus in you? Not just in the things you say, but in the way in which you live. This takes work, right? But it's well worth it. D.A. Carson said this, I want you to just let this quote wash over you like water. Don't forget it. The church is never more than three generations from losing the gospel. One generation believes and proclaims it, a second generation assumes it, and a third generation loses it. It happens that quick and sometimes quicker. I see it all the time in ministry. Grandparents believe it, passionate about it. Their kids, not so much. They may faithfully attend church, but it's not near and dear to them. And they raise children who have no clue. It means absolutely nothing to them. Happens all the time. I see it all the time. Parents, grandparents, church, we have to be mindful of this. We have to invest in the next generation. What are you doing? to not only provide spiritual care for yourself, but for the next generation in the church and in your home. I love the fact that we're all together here on Sunday mornings and we're back together on Sunday evenings. Sunday evenings we have believers, young and old, studying the Word together, sharpening one another together. We enjoy a meal together and we break up and we study the Word. Our kids and youth, they're going to study this, this message in a, in a lesson format tonight, sermon-based lessons, so that they can take those home. You've heard it this morning, so that you can converse about these things. Talk with them as you walk along the way, as you sit in your house, as you lie down, and when you get up. We don't do that because it's easier. It's just easy to do a lesson based on the sermon. We do that on purpose, so that those conversations will happen. You're supporting our kids and our youth when you commit to come. You, you support our kids and our youth, the next generation, when you give. We've been talking about that. When you give of your time and your money, we pour that back in to escorting them to Christ, establishing them in truth, and equipping them for ministry. Parents, grandparents, we have a Monday through Friday study guide along with sermon-based kids' lessons that we provide for you each and every week. Fellowshipjacksonville.com slash ministry slash kidszone. We've got all the lessons for you. You can download them. You can listen to the songs. We have a bookstore filled with excellent resources. I've read them all, used them all, approve of them all. We've made it extremely easy for you. There's really no excuse. You have it every week. We just put it out there for you on a, on a silver platter. What are you doing with it? Listen, I want this to really hit home. We need to invest in the next generation or you're guaranteed we will lose them. We absolutely will. I want that to cause you to be restless. Cause you to lose some sleep over it. Instead, pray. 
in a generation, God's people went from witnessing God topple the walls of Jericho to being totally separated from God in one generation. Israel was lost. It can happen just like that. Just like that, it can be lost. Let's learn from their mistake. Let's remind this next generation of God's person and work through what we say and do by sharing the gospel with them, by shining the light of God's gospel to them. I don't want to leave this point just yet. You know, this is one that's near and dear to me. What are some practical ways we can do this? I heard a pastor once share these. You can write these down. I don't have them in the notes, but he said, one... You need to believe it personally. Believe the gospel personally. It must be personal and precious to you first. Believe it personally. Confess it publicly. Teach it consistently. And live it passionately. Believe it personally. Confess it publicly. Teach it consistently. Live it passionately. Next point. A generation drifting from God needs to be encouraged to not be unequally yoked with the godless culture. We've got to be set apart. Look at verse 11. We've got to move. <laughs> and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the God of their fathers. They hitched their wagon to the world. They went after the gods of the peoples around them. They bowed down to them. They looked to what was popular in society. Does that sound familiar? They were drawn to those false gods that were precious and desirable to the nations around them. Who was to blame for this betrayal? Did the previous generation fail to reach out or did this generation harden their hearts? I believe it was a bit of both. Tim Keller in his commentary on Judges says, when a whole generation turns away, we have to expect that the parents have failed to model real faith and disciple their children. So when we look at the world around us, we've said before, as goes the home, so goes the church, so goes society, so goes the world. So we need to look within our homes, within our churches, when things are going haywire in the world, okay? Parents, don't neglect the calling. Mothers, don't neglect the calling. Fathers, don't neglect the calling that God has placed upon you to be the chief discipler of your children. Read our verses for the week in your bulletin. Lots of instruction on this. Notice God's response. We're told they provoke the Lord to anger. Did you know that God's anger here, his jealousy, is because of his love for his people? People often, they think anger is the opposite of love, but, but really apathy is. Isn't it? If God were apathetic, about this abandonment, then we could conclude he didn't truly love them. The fact that he is angered, he's, he's deeply concerned, troubled, reveals he loves them. God 
has created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. We turned away from him. We hitched our wagons to this godless culture. We set ourselves against him in sin. He sent his only son to die for us in order to redeem us. While we were still sinners, Paul says in Romans 5, God sent his son, Christ, to die for us. So when we abandon the one who created us for himself, when we reject his son he sacrificed to save us, it angers him because he cares, because he loves. Look at verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, because that's what plunderers do. Remember, at the end of chapter 1, they're the ones doing the enslaving, and now they're the ones who are enslaved. While they enslaved their enemies, they adopted their beliefs and practices, and then they were enslaved by them, and it really doesn't make sense that they would do that, right? They left the one true and living God who had given them success, who had delivered their enemies into their hands, and they went and they served the false gods and, and followed the beliefs and practices of the ones they had conquered and enslaved. So God punishes them by enslaving them. This is an act of grace, by the way. Did you know that? Did you know, we've talked about this before, that God's past acts of judgment, his promise of future judgment, that's his mercy? We often think in the opposite because we've been influenced too much by the world, but it is. His past judgment reminds us that future judgment is coming. His promise of future judgment, it, it, it is meant to produce in us a, a brokenness and a repentant heart and a, it's meant to lead us to cry out in need of God who can save us, the only one who can. God could have let them prosper. They would have never come to the point of distress. They might have never hit their knees and cried out. Praise be to God that he at times, he breaks our hands in love to bring us to our knees and to his feet in faith. Amen? There are many today who have abandoned the one true and living God and they are bowed to the idols of this culture. I'm not talking about wooden or stone statues, but anything that has become a ruling thing in your heart and life. Idolatry can simply be defined as this. Look at this from the New City Catechism, a book that's in our bookstore. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Idols could be money, fame, sex, respect, success, family. It could be a combination of, or any one of those things in particular. Could be a good thing that has become a bad thing because it has become a God thing, a ruling thing. Are you willing to pray, God, do whatever it takes to bring the one drifting from you to your feet. Are you willing to pray that? Does his kindness bring us to repentance? Absolutely. Does God's judgment bring us to repentance? Absolutely. Whatever it takes. Let's pray he does it. Let's pray he does it. I invite you to pray with me for this generation that God would do whatever it takes. Look at verse 14. 
And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies. Their slaves have now become their masters so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So here we are introduced to an important cycle that continues throughout the book of Judges, the cycle of sin and judgment, distress, Deliverance and restoration. They sin against God. God brings his judgment upon them. In their distress, they cry out to God. Sometimes they do. They get to the point where they're not even crying out. But at first, they're crying out. Then he brings deliverance. Then he restores them. Then they sin against him again. We will see this happen over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And each time they return, they're worse and worse than before. More and more like the Canaanites. Remember, they start here. We talked about that. And there's just a downward spiral with, with God's people in, in Judges. We learn here that God's people, Israel, they were ruled by idols. What idols rule you? Is it money? Is it success, comfort, fame, family, sex, security? We learn in Judges that when idols rule you, God is provoked to anger. And the reason why is because you're believing in the lies of the culture around you that says, hey, there's happiness to be had in this life and it's found in this, this created thing. Rather than the creator who created us male and female, in his own image, to glorify him. When we abandon the one who made us and sent his son to save us and look to idols to bring us joy that only comes through a right relationship with God through Christ, we forfeit true joy. We settle for less than what God intends. We commit spiritual infidelity, spiritual adultery. How will God's people respond? He sends them saviors graciously. How do you think they'll respond? Not good, unfortunately. Look at verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after, there you go, spiritual adultery. They whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Sad. They, they, they were in complete opposition of God they went the complete opposite direction they rejected the leading of their saviors they abandoned their Lord they hoard after other gods they bowed down to them they got to the point where they completely forsook the faithful path of their fathers before them while God continued to be gracious to them show mercy to him they forsook him they rejected him again and again and again Let's keep reading. Link, lengthy section here. We're almost finished. Verses 18 through 23. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The grace of God, right? In the book of Judges. When we think judges, we think judgment. And, and there is most definitely judgment in judges. But a major emphasis in judges is grace. The grace of God. I want you to see that. I'm going to draw it out 
again and again throughout this study. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. You see, he loved them. He was moved to compassion for them. When witnessing them in misery, he shows his mercy and grace and love. He's with the judges. He sent to save them, verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They're getting worse and worse. It's downward spiral. They did not drop any of the, their practices of their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because the, this people have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Verse 23, so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So while God shows them unmerited and undeserved favor, he is merciful and gracious to them. He also punishes them for their wickedness, right? They don't believe God. They don't push out their enemies. So God says, okay, now they're going to remain and they're going to be thorns in your side. And we're going to see this happen. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. That just means that one of God's purposes for his people with these battles, with their enemies in Canaan, was for them to learn how to fight faithfully in a broken and fallen, hostile world. The Lord was teaching them, testing them with these battles, and at times they failed miserably. We've already seen that because one of the keys for God's people in battle is to believe God when he promises victory, right? And to fight in faith, believing God will bring the victory. Joshua and Caleb demonstrated this kind of faith, but God's people Israel in the period of the judges, they failed at this miserably. Look at verse 3. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamoth. They were, they, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They failed this test. They failed to believe the God who promised them through Moses and Joshua that they would be victorious. So God allowed for these nations to remain. He told them he would not drive them out. They would remain in the land. He let them remain to test his people further, to see if they would turn away from them, walk in his ways as their father did, as Joshua did, as Caleb did, but they fail miserably. They not only adopt their beliefs and practices, but they intermarry with their enemies. We'll see this with Samson later, but we see it here. Look at verse 6. 
And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Lesson we learn throughout the book of Judges, throughout the Old Testament, and into the New Testament, who you marry matters. When you become unequally yoked, that affects you, that affects your family, that affects future generations. It amazes me how believing parents will give approval to relationships if their child is with someone with a bright future, a college degree, a good job, nice manners. What about where they are spiritually? (laughs) Does that matter at all? Does that factor in? Folks, God wants us to be concerned with this. He wants our attitude to be, give me a poor but faithful Christ follower rather than a Canaanite praised by culture. Give me a devoted Christian who will lead my daughter, help my son, disciple my grandchildren. That's how to be about future generations. God's people were not thinking in this way. They were doing more than walking in the counsel of the wicked, more than standing in the way of sinners. They were sitting with scoffers, bowing with idolaters, and intermarrying with the godless. A generation drifting from God needs to be warned of Israel's failures. They need to be advised against being unequally yoked with the godless culture. Last point, quickly. A generation drifting from God needs a true and better Savior to deliver them from sin and death and restore them to God. Look back up in Judges 2.18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. We will see as we continue to study through the book of Judges, that the rebellion of God's people Israel becomes worse and worse, their oppression becomes more and more, their repentance becomes less and less, and the judges who are sent to save become worse and worse. That's what you have to look forward to, all right? I told you, this book's a hard one, isn't it? Covers one of the darkest periods in God's people's history and would be difficult to study if we didn't have the rest of the story. Amen? With the rest of the story in mind, we can study the book of Judges and know that man needs something better than a human judge, better than a broken Savior. Man needs something more than physical deliverance from a trial in this life, something more than a good leader who eventually dies. We need someone who can deliver our sin, our souls from sin, our lives from death. Someone who is eternal. Someone who is able to completely restore us forever. There is not a rescuer like that in the book of Judges. But there is a rescuer like that as we continue through our study of Scripture. We learn as we continue our study that in the fullness of time, God sent sinful man a perfect Savior in His Son. Jesus left the riches of heaven. He became one of us, lived the perfect life for us. He died as our perfect substitute and sacrifice in order to save us. Have you turned from this wicked, sinful world to God's perfect Savior? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you bowed your knee to the King of kings, 
Lord of Lords, Judge of Judges, Jesus Christ. I pray you would today. Let's pray together.